Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and open to our text, which is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We had a wonderful time last Sunday around God's Word and Paul's instructions there to Timothy concerning the role of prayer in our corporate gatherings. And we saw to put that teaching to practice, didn't we? As we prayed together, first of all, for God's mercy upon our church and our land and for revival beginning here in our own hearts and in this own fellowship, and we pray that it would spread. But prior to last week, we spent nearly three months walking through the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Roman church in which the Apostle Paul brings an indictment against all humanity, the pagan, the religious, the hedonist, the legalist, the Gentile, and the Jew. All of us, Paul declares, are without excuse. All of us are sinners standing guilty before God, all of us deserving his judgment. And Paul went to great lengths to prove his point and to show the gravity of the situation before finally giving us the good news that God has made a way for a sinful man to be made right with him, a holy God, to be justified, in other words. That really is the theme of the entire book of Romans, the doctrine of justification by faith. And that way to heaven, which is receiving the grace of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He summarized all that truth in Romans 3, 23 and 24 when he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So having established that salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, Paul now turns his attention in chapter 4 to his Jewish friends. And he's reminding them that the only way that God has ever saved anyone or justified any person, Jew or Gentile, is by faith. You remember that Paul is making arguments like a courtroom attorney. He's prosecuting the case against humanity. And he now calls two posthumous witnesses from ancient history as verification of this thesis. Hear it now. Justification by faith has always been God's plan and will always be God's plan. Now, the first witness he calls is Abraham. And then he will call a second witness, that of David. Let's read our text, Romans 4, 1 through 8. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. And by any measure, Abraham is one of the most important figures in all the Bible and indeed in all of human history. He's held up as a model and an example of faithfulness in three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. His name is mentioned 294 times in the Bible. 
You remember that Paul is addressing though, his fellow Jews, seeking them uh, to convince them that the only way to be right with God is to be justified by faith. And he knows that if he can prove that Abraham had to be justified by faith, and then no one can come except through justification by faith. That's exactly his point, and he makes that point very well. So reaching back into history, Paul now calls Father Abraham to the witness stand. Let's look at the witness of Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? In other words, what did Abraham discover? What was his experience as it relates to justification and salvation? Well, it begins with his calling. Who was this Abraham? Most of you have heard of him. Maybe you know a few things about his life. Let me just remind you that uh, his name originally was Abram. And he was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is probably in modern day Iraq, though we haven't pinpointed exactly where it is. There's debate about that, but certainly in the Middle East. And because he lived in a pagan land, he was pagan. He was an idolater. Likely he worshiped a moon god. But he was given a vision and told to go into a land that God would show him. We find that in Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God makes promises to Abraham and they're lofty promises. He says, you're gonna be great. You're gonna have a great name. You're gonna have a great family and all the people of the world will be blessed through your lineage. Now these promises and these affirmations came in three different episodes. One in Genesis 12, one in Genesis 15, and one in Genesis 17. And collectively we call them the Abrahamic covenant. I just read you the promises of Genesis 12. Later on, when Abraham was a little older and those promises seemed not to be coming to pass, God reaffirmed those promises by coming to Abraham again. And this time he gave him a ceremony. And God in some physical manifestation appeared to Abraham and he cut some animals in half. And he caused himself to walk between the two halves of the animals. And all the time Abraham was over on the side asleep. I think it's very significant that God put Abraham to sleep during this covenant ceremony. I think he was saying, Abraham, this is a unilateral promise. I'm going to do this. I'm God. And I'm obligating myself through promises and through this covenant to do that. And if that weren't enough, sometime later, God appeared to him a third time in Genesis 17 and he gave him a ritual physical sign to remind not only Abraham, but all of his descendants of these promises. And we call that sign circumcision. And so that's his calling. But let's talk about his life for a second. Certainly it is extraordinary in, in many ways. He traveled farther than most people of his day ever traveled. Um, he became very wealthy through the course of his lifetime and was respected in large part of the world. And today even, Thousands of years after his death, he is still revered by literally billions of people. But on the other hand, Abraham's life is not that different from ours. The book of Genesis records that he had many disappointments and failures. He had family conflict. He lost a wife to death. He made lots of mistakes. But the thing we remember most about Abraham is his faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in the same fourth chapter of Romans that Abraham is the father of all of those having faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews devotes several verses to Abraham and his family's faith. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, 
when he was called, obeyed by going out into a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Can you imagine God coming to you and say, just start walking. I'll tell you when you get there. And by faith, he lived as an alien in that land of promise and in the foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. In his lifetime, the only piece of property he owned in that entire nation that was promised to him was the gravesite for he and his descendants that he bought. He was looking for a city, verse 10 says, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars in heaven in number, and innumerable, the sand, which is the seashore. So the writer of Hebrews is commending Abraham faith and his faithfulness. But as great as Abraham's faith was, like ours, it was an imperfect faith. Consider his calling. Stephen in the book of Acts, shortly before his martyrdom, declared that Abram's, Abram's first encounter with God happened when he was down in Ur of the Chaldees, where God told him to leave his family. And he didn't do that. He took his family with him as far as the city of Haran. And he had to wait until Terah, his father, died and then he went on the rest of the way. God was merciful and patient with him. It was, he was 75 years old when he began that second leg of the journey. But even then, God again said, leave your family. Did he leave his entire family? No, he took his nephew Lot with him, and that would cause him problems later on. And when he got to the promised land, a famine came. But God didn't tell Abram to go to Egypt, but he did. He left where God had brought him and went to Egypt. God even prospered him there, brought him back. But in Egypt, he lied, didn't he, about his relationship to his wife. But I think the most shameful episode, and probably the one he's most embarrassed about, is that of this young girl named Hagar. Sarah got to a point in her life where she believed she was beyond the age of giving birth to children. And she said, if you want a descendant, Abraham, it can't be through me. I'm going to give to you my handmaid, Hagar. Rather than Abraham saying, no, we're going to believe God. We're going to do it his way. He said, okay. And of course, from that relationship came Ishmael, which also called him many problems to days to come. Ishmael was not the son of promise, God said. He had a natural son, one from his marriage to Sarah that God was going to bring about. But again, God was patient, didn't give up on Abraham. Now Paul gets to his point. Here it is. Don't miss it. If Abraham had to be saved by faith, if Abraham could not be saved by works, because if he did, he said he'd have something to boast about. Paul said we'd be worshiping Abraham and not Jehovah. And so if Abraham were saved by works, he'd have something to boast about. But since he was saved by faith, all the glory goes to God. So let's talk about Abraham's salvation is justification. Because remember, the theme of this entire book is justification by faith. Look at verse three. For what does the scripture say? Now underline that verse, please. When you're getting ready to do personal evangelism or you have a theological question of any kind, this is the right question to ask yourself. Not what do the commentaries say? What does the internet say? What do the pastors say? What do the scriptures say? And so Paul appeals to the scriptures 
to explain that Abraham was saved by faith. The scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. That's common sense. Every child knows this. If you contract with an employer, which by the way, every restaurant in town has a help wanted sign out. And they're talking about all the benefits and the pay. Be a great time to be a teenager today if you're looking for a part-time job. But if you go in and they say, okay, we're gonna pay you $12 an hour and you're gonna get 30 hours a week. At the end of the week, when it's time for your paycheck, you don't feel obligated to write a thank you note to your employer because you are getting what you have earned. That's the same thing with salvation. If we had earned our salvation, we wouldn't owe God any praise or thanks. We wouldn't have to sing hallelujah today. We'd be patting ourselves on the back. But because we can't be saved by works and because every person, including the greatest person in the Jewish mind, Abraham had to be saved by faith, we are guaranteed that we must also be saved by faith. Abram's name meant literally father of many. Can you imagine as years went by and he turned 75 and 80 and 85, people would come knock on his tent door and say, Father Abraham, father of many, we have a question for you. And there were no other voices besides those of he and his wife in the tent, no pitter-patter of little feet. Every time he heard his name, it must have twisted that knife in his back, and he began to doubt and wonder if God's promises would ever be fulfilled. So God, because he's gracious and merciful to us, comes to him a second time in Genesis 15. And we read these words, Do not fear, Abram, for I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram's reward didn't seem very great at the time. He said it will be. Have faith. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Of Damascus, that's one of his servants. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house will be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look up into heaven and count the stars if you're able. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He said, Abraham, I've not been lying to you. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to. Look up in the sky. It's one thing to look up in the sky in Dallas-Fort Worth. You might pick out the moon and two other stars. <laughs> but you go out to Big Bend National Park where Brother Lawrence likes to go take pictures and you look up in the sky and it is a canopy of God's creativity. He says, count those stars if you're able. Of course, he knew he wouldn't be able to. He says, that's how many of your descendants are going to be. Trust me. And what did Abraham do? Now, Lord, you know that can't happen. I'm an old man. My wife's worn out. Verse 6 says, he believed in the Lord. And the Lord reckoned his belief as, as righteousness. He reckoned his faith as righteousness. Friends, this is the reckoning that I reference in the title. Two, witness to, two witnesses to God's reckoning. Reckoning is an accounting term. Some of you are familiar with it. My brother is three years older than me and he is an accountant and has been his entire professional life. We have several accountants that work for us here at the church on the third floor. And here's what I know about accountants. 
that do a good job and are trustworthy, they are obsessed with order and putting things in the right place. I always say my brother was an accountant when we shared a toy box as children. <laughs> he knew any time one of his were out of place. The Greek word, New Testament word for accounting, crediting, reckoning is logizomai. It means to impute. So the point is that what happens when we're saved is that God gives us faith and the ability to connect us to the power behind salvation, which is his grace, which is made available to us by the redemption made possible through his son's perfect life, literal death and glorious resurrection. That friends is the gospel. And it's based on the concept of imputed righteousness. It is not by effort. It is not by works. It is faith to believe to receive the gift. And here's the thesis one more time. Don't overlook it. Paul's point here in chapter 4 to his Jewish friends, and by extension to all of us in this room today, is that the only way anyone has ever or will ever be made right with God is by justification by faith alone. That is the question that all humanity is asking. How can a man be made right with God? Paul's answer over and over again is justification by faith alone. But Paul knows that not everyone's convinced yet. So he keeps hitting the same chord over and over and over. So he calls one more witness. If Abraham, the father of all those having faith, were not enough, he calls one more witness from history, and that of David. The witness of David. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, quoting David, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's that accounting word again. Now, almost every Jewish person knows the story of David, and most Christian people know the story of David. You might remember that he was the young son of a man named Jesse. And they lived in a place called Bethlehem. David's older brothers had gone out ostensibly to fight the Philistines. And Jesse sent David with some cheese and some refreshments out to the battle lines, really to get news of his brother's welfare. And instead of finding his brothers and the other men of the armies of Israel fighting the Philistines, he found them cowering in their tents. And he wanted to know why they weren't fighting. And he found out soon enough because as was happening every day, apparently, this giant Goliath was coming out and cursing their God and belittling them and challenging them to fight him. And David asked a question that only a teenager could ask. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'll fight him. They took him to King Saul and they tried Saul's armor on him and it fit like his father's shirt hanging to the ground. And David took off the armor and he took up some stones and he took his little slingshot and he slew Goliath. And so was the beginning of David's fame in Israel. And it didn't stop there. It grew and grew until his fame outstripped that of the king. And the women wrote songs and sang them. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his 
tens of thousands, and every time Saul heard it, it made him jealous and angry. His anger grew to the point that he wanted to kill David. David would not do harm to Saul's head because he feared the Lord and the Lord's anointed. But eventually God removed Saul and placed David on the throne of Israel. And he was a Renaissance man, a man's man to be sure, but also an artist, a poet, a writer. He knew agriculture from his days as a shepherd boy. He was also a great warrior, defeated many of God's enemies. And he was an able king, expanded the kingdom and brought it to its height that it never had known before. But in the Bible, like Abraham, David is presented as he really is, warts and all. And I said that Abraham is most known for his faith. Unfortunately for David, the thing he's most known for is his sin. And his sin was great, even though the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. You remember one day, the scripture says, when it was time of year, when kings went out to war, David was found in his bed taking a nap. He rose from his nap and went out on his balcony and he looked over into the next house on top of the roof and he saw a woman taking a bath. And he lusted in his heart after her. It wasn't just any woman. It was the wife of his closest friend and most loyal ally, Uriah the Hittite. And he called for her and he slept with her and she conceived a child. And to cover it up, David brought Uriah home from the battlefield, but he would not be comforted by his wife while his men on the field of battle. He slept in the doorway rather than with his wife. So when David knew his plan wouldn't work, he had him killed. God saw it all. God sent a prophet named Nathan to David and he told him a little story. He said, there's a man in your kingdom that has a lot of sheep. And he had a visitor, a guest that came and rather than killing one of his sheep to feed his guest, he went to his neighbor who had only one little ewe lamb and took it and slew it and fed it to his guest. And David was outraged, burned with anger. Who is this person? He shall receive justice. And Nathan pointed his bony prophetic finger in the king's face and said, Thou art the man. And rather than blowing up in anger and throwing Nathan in prison or killing him, he believed him. He knew it was true. And he did what poets do when they are moved with emotion. He took his pen in hand and he wrote the 53rd Psalm. Crying out to God, he said, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and 
Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors their ways and sinners will be converted to you. Did you note in David's words, not one hint of arrogance, total humility. This is the king speaking to God. He says, you're right. Nathan was right. I am guilty. In fact, only against you have I sinned. Now he knew he had sinned against Uriah and his wife and the entire kingdom. But David had such an exalted view of God's holiness. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He says, you're right. Whatever judgment you send, I deserve it. But I'm asking you not for justice, but for mercy. He called upon the Lord to cleanse him. Not just to cleanse him so that he could be neutral again, but he says, replace the wickedness that is within me with righteousness. Create in me, he says, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is the prayer, not of works righteousness or self-righteousness. This is the prayer of faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God heard that prayer? Do you think he forgave David? Did he cleanse him? Yes, he did. In fact, David later writes, blessed is the men whose lawless deeds the Lord will not take into account. He never diminished the depravity of his own sin. But he gives glory to God that his grace is greater than his sin. He calls upon him to not hold his sin on his account. Logizomai, that accounting term, do not credit me with my sins. Remove it from me, he says. Here's the conclusion. One more time. If justification by faith is the only way Abraham could be saved and the only, hand, only way that David could be saved, it is the only way you and I can be saved. So the question is, how can God do it? Well, it's not how some have imagined. I've told the story many times of the worst sermon I've ever heard. It was a very famous preacher. He still is famous to this day. And I was asked to go with some other people to hear him preach. And I went. And the title of his sermon was God Gives Mulligans. And he compared the doctrine of atonement to a golf match in which someone hits a bad shot off the first tee and his playing partner said, I'm going to give you a mulligan. A mulligan means I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. I'm going to look the other way. I'm going to take my eraser and remove that mark from you and it never happened. A lot of people have the notion that's what God does when he saves us. Friends, that's a very low view of God. Because when we take our eraser and we make transactions that appear to be true that aren't true, that's a lie. The Bible says our God cannot and will not lie. If God did something unethical to make the ledger right for you so that you could go to heaven, he'd be a sinner. And he wouldn't be qualified to die in your place. That's not what happens. Here's what happens. God looks at the ledger of life and he sees our account and it's nothing but liabilities, sin, and debt. And on the side that says assets, nothing. He looks at his son's ledger and on the side that says debts and liabilities, there's nothing. He's perfect. And on the side of assets, it's perfect righteousness. And so what does he do? He makes a way in which his son can transfer his righteousness to your account and your debts, your sins, can be transferred to Christ on the cross. And that's exactly what happens. But it requires the son 
being perfect. Is he perfect? Yes. And it requires you having humble faith to receive it. See, Christ has done everything that is necessary for you to be right with God. The question, how can you be made right with God? There's only one correct answer. By faith alone, by the grace alone of Christ alone. To be connected to Christ in some mysterious and mystical way because he lived a perfect life and he died and took the punishment on the cross for all those who would believe. What about you? Are you ready to receive the grace gift of salvation from Jesus? You can. The Bible says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul said it this way later on in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's not just articulating some magic phrase. It's believing and trusting in everything that Jesus said is true. He is God. He is the righteous sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. See, the resurrection is necessary for your salvation because it proves that God the Father accepts the sacrifice of God the Son. He, he's not, as Gilbert said, the unscrupulous janitor who sees the dirt in your life and turns the other way or sweeps it under the rug. Neither is he an unethical accountant who takes out his pencil eraser and pretends you have righteousness that you don't. No, he's perfect and the perfect judge and your sins must be punished. They were at the cross. And if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, all of your sins will be transferred to him at the cross. But here's the wonderful news. His righteousness will be credited to your ledger. And when God asks you why he should let you in his heaven, your answer has to be because of the righteousness of your son imputed to me through faith. Friends, that's the only way anyone can go to heaven. Abraham and David looked forward in history to that day at the cross. We look backwards in time to the cross, but it's the same cross that saves everyone who will believe. I call upon you today to believe on Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have gathered this morning, with brothers and sisters, Chinese brothers, Vietnamese brothers, hearing impaired brothers. I look around the room, people hearing the message in Spanish and other languages. Lord, thank you that we live in such a wonderful day. But Father, the, the answer to the question, how can a man be made right with God is the same in any language. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his grace. And Father, if there's even one here today that the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin and judgment and righteousness. Lord, would you, by an act of your grace, grant them faith to believe. And Father, I pray that they would uh, be bold to profess that faith publicly before us here today and follow in obedience through believer's baptism and join the church and become a disciple and a disciple maker. And Lord, when we see that happening, we're gonna count it answer to prayer. And we're going to see it as the first fruit of revival, which we all long to see. Father, I pray if there's a Christian here today and they've grown cold in their walk with you because they've become disappointed in some answer to prayer they perceive is not coming. Lord, I pray they'd be encouraged by the story of Abraham who waited a long life before you finally fulfilled your promise. And Lord, we believe you.
All your promises are yes and amen and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Encourage our faith today, Father. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that they would bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that we would indeed be salt and light in this community for the glory of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.